Thanks for downloading the Cross Defense Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. On this episode, we talk about the fear of God. What does, it, does it really mean to fear God? And then my friend, Pastor Jeff Boyle, comes on to talk about Christ in the Old Testament. Oh, how he, that guy just preaches the gospel. Thanks for listening. Here we go, Cross Defense. Welcome to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, joining you every week to set up. This is our idea. We're fighting back against the devil by talking about theology because the devil, oh, that devil wants us to think that theology is bored. Can you imagine? There's nothing more lovely, more true. Paul says at the end of Philippians, whatever's true, good, lovely, honorable, think about these things. There's nothing more good, true, lovely, or honorable than the Holy Scriptures, than Jesus given to us in the Holy Scriptures. This fills our minds and our hearts, and then out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the body lives, the mind meditates, and yet the devil wants us to think, oh, there's theology is boring. Oh, that devil. Anyway, we're fighting back against the devil here, doing spiritual warfare by rejoicing in the gift of theology. That's what we're after uh, every week. Again, uh, I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. To find out more about what's going on, more theology stuff, we've got some YouTube videos, some other podcasts. You can find that at wolfmuller.co. It's W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R.co. Here's the plan for today. We're going to talk about the fear of the Lord for the first few minutes here. We're going to meditate on that idea. And then Pastor Jeff Boyle is going to join us. He, uh, We talked just this afternoon, and he says he wants to talk about Christ in the Old Testament and how most people, oh, this is, most people read the Old Testament as if it's like the preface to the New Testament. Just getting, it's like the warm-up for the New Testament. But he wants to sh- talk to us about how Christ is present there, how Jesus is working uh, in and through the Old Testament and so forth. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, the fear of the Lord. Now, if you just a cursory reading of the Bible, just a, like the most basic taking a look at the scriptures will reveal to us that the idea of the fear of the Lord is particularly important. You know, we, there's a famous proverb. In fact, it comes up twice in the book of Proverbs where Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in another place. In fact, the Christians of the Old Testament are sometimes called those who fear the Lord. When the Lord is giving us the commands, he says, he says, fear the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is all, in fact, it's just, it's almost equivalent to worship. It's equivalent to faith. It's equivalent to what it means to be a Christian. It means you have a fear of the Lord. But what does that mean? Now, most people, I think, when they hear that phrase, the fear of the Lord, they think, well, what that means is that we should have in fact, I think this is the official definition that I've heard from a lot of preachers. They say we should have a holy awe and respect. Now, there's a problem with that, and namely the problem is if the Bible wants to say that we should have holy awe and respect for the Lord, then it just says it. We should have holy awe and respect. The Bible has a way of saying that, but it doesn't say, it says we should fear the Lord. That word fear is used very, very particularly. Now, it's captured for us. This is a beautiful document. You got many, many of you know uh, know it. It's uh, Martin Luther's small catechism, where he takes the Ten Commandments and the Creed and the Lord's Prayer, and he explains it. And when he gets to the first commandment, I mean, he doesn't have to m- much distance to get to the first commandment. It's right there at the beginning. The first commandment: "You shall have no other gods before me." Luther gives us this great explanation. He says, "What does this mean? It means we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things." 
that the first commandment, which commands us to have no other gods, is a command that we would fear God, that we would love God, and that we would trust God. And this, I'm convinced, is an utterly faithful biblical explanation of the first commandment. Now, it's, it, and it's not just a, that we should hold the Lord in, with a holy awe and respect. It's more than that. It's, it's saying to us that we should, in fact, fear God. Now, that's what I want to think of, that we should fear God. Now, Martin Chemnitz, one of the early Lutheran theologians, he says, now, there's a difference between a servile feel and a fear and a filial fear, and we'll think about this distinction in order to push us a little further. The fear of a servant versus the fear of a son, because if someone's punishing you, if you're, if you're their servant, they're punishing you because you did wrong, and they're, and they, they're punishing you out of anger to get you to do the right thing. But if you're the son, the son is being punished for a different reason. You're being disciplined. So our fear of the Lord, the Christian fear of the Lord, is the fear of a son for the father. In other words, you don't you don't want to get on, you don't want to step out of line because your father will correct you out of love. He'll correct you and rebuke you to to put you back in line. So the fear of the Lord is not a servile sort of um, fear, a diminishing sort of fear. It's a fear that comes out of the Lord's love, but it is fear nonetheless. Now I want to tell you guys a story. A few mm, months ago. It might have been last year already. Huh, I wonder how long that was. I went out on the street uh, to do some man-on-the-street videos, and I was asking people these three questions. What do, you, what do you love most of all? What do you trust most of all? And what do you fear most of all? And I probably talked about a dozen, maybe 16, 17 people asking them those three questions. Now, here's what was very interesting to me, and I did not expect this, although looking back, I maybe should have. That almost everyone gave the same answer to what do you love? What do you love most of all? Almost everyone said, I love my family. And that's kind of what you're supposed I mean, that's kind of a question that everyone knows how you're supposed to answer it. So they would answer it that way. I love my family most of all. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my girlfriend. Whatever it is, that's what they love most of all. And, surprising to me, that most people answered the question, what do you trust most of all? Almost the same. There was two answers that people gave. There was something like, I trust myself or I don't trust nobody. <laughs> now, I suppose that might have been, I was out on a pretty rough street that's close by the church, right up the street here. And so it was a, you know, it wasn't the the most uh, peaceful of neighborhoods, and so maybe that was an indication of where I was. I don't trust nobody. I don't trust the police. I don't trust the government. I don't trust that guy. That's a, I don't trust anybody but myself. That's like the only thing that people could say. But, but when it got to the question of what do you fear, that's when you really actually learned about the person. That's, that's where you, you started to figure out who they were. One guy said, I'm afraid of going to jail. And the guy next to him said, yeah, I'm afraid of going back to jail. <laughs> One kid who was skipping school and smoking pot said, I'm afraid of being broke. How about that? That was an interesting one. One guy said to me, he said, I just, I just got back from my father's funeral. And I was there. I was there. There was a handful of us from the family who were there at my father's funeral, and nobody had anything good to say about my father. Even after he died, even at his funeral, nobody had anything good to say. And he said, I'm afraid of that. Now, I think this question, what are you afraid of, gets us right up to, to what our God is. 
to what it is that we worship. Because fear, when we fear something, we are exalting that thing. We're lifting it up. We're giving it authority. And that thing that we fear is shaping our lives. It shapes the way we think. It shapes the way we feel. It, it, it shapes the way we talk. It especially shapes the way that we act. So it's just it's take, what we, take something that you fear, like say you fear dying. Your fear of death is shaping the way that you live your life. It's shaping the things that you do and that you don't do. It's, it's putting limits around you. It's, it's, it's hemming you in. In other words, our fear is, an, it, we, whatever it is that we fear, we're lifting it up. And in that way, a fear is an act of worship. We take what we fear, we take what we're afraid of, and we're letting it have authority over us. Now, the fear of death is an especially powerful thing. This is what Hebrews 2 says. Remember Hebrews 2? We cannot spend enough time in Hebrews chapter 2 where, where it says that Jesus partook of flesh and blood like us so that through his death he might overcome him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and set us free who were our whole lives held in the bondage of the fear of death. Now, we don't want to miss that. The fear of death is a bondage because, and it's a bondage to the devil himself, that the devil uses the fear of death to hold us in bondage. Now we can see this just in, a, in a, any number of ways, but you want to think about it for your own life. But I've been studying the martyrs lately to see how the devil tries to use the fear of death. He said, you, you just remember these stories, the devil would march up to Christians and he'd say, hey, you got to offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord or else I'm going to kill you. And the people were afraid to die. We're all, we have this natural inborn fear of death. They were afraid to die. So they would commit idolatry. They would offer a pinch of incense. They would say, Caesar is Lord, because they were afraid to die. So that the devil, you see this very clearly there, that the devil used the fear of death to hold the Christians in bondage. Our fear is reckoning something, you see. Our fear is, is giving status and giving power, giving authority, in fact, giving dominion to whatever it is that we fear. Whatever we fear, we're saying to that thing, you are Lord over me. You can tell me what to do. If you come with your threats, you can manipulate me. You can make me act in a certain way. You can make me do certain things. If I'm afraid of drowning then I'm not going to go by the water. If I'm afraid of shame, then I'm not going to speak the name of Jesus to my friends. Or whatever it is. You see, that, the, the, that our fears are manipulating us and shaping the way that we live. Now, this is why the fear of God is, surprisingly, the thing that sets us free. Because the fear of God is exclusive when the, when the Bible says that we should fear God, it's not saying, well, you should, amongst all the other things that you fear, you should add God to the list. So I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid to be lonely. I'm afraid of poverty. I'm afraid of whatever. And also, by the way, I'm afraid of God. No, that's not the way it works. In the Bible, when it says you should fear God, it's saying you should fear God alone. You shouldn't be afraid of anything else but God. The fear of God is exclusive. There's a thing marked, the thing that you fear, and God says, I alone should be there. So I want to put this image in your imagination, okay? I want, so, so if you're driving, don't close your eyes. Otherwise, if you're listening, close your eyes and imagine this. You're standing next to God, and in front of you is a long line of things that want you to be afraid of them. 
It's going to be, whatever's in that line is going to be different, I suppose, for every one of us. But probably every one of us has death there. Death stands up there in front of the line, and death says, hey, you should be afraid of me. And we look and we say, oh, death, you're kind of, you are sort of scary. I, I do want to be afraid of you. And so we look over to God, and we say, should we be afraid of death here? And the Lord says, no. And he points at himself. should be afraid of me. And here comes pain. Next in line, hey, you should be afraid of me. And we say, oh, that's a good idea. Well, then we look over at God and he shakes his head and says, no, don't be afraid of that. Be afraid of me. And then here comes sickness. And here comes loneliness. And here comes failure. And here, I mean, who knows what, the, you know, some of us are afraid of things to happen in our body, to go wrong in the body. Some of us are afraid of things to go wrong in the mind. Some of us have social fears. Some of us have, you know, the, I was talking to another guy on the street and he, he said, I'm afraid of that I, that, that I won't accomplish anything in my life, that I'll just be a nobody for my whole life. There, there's all sorts of things that we're afraid of. And all those things are lined up there. I mean, who knows what it is for you? There's a shark. And the shark says, you should be afraid of me. And we look over to God and say, well, look, the shark, it's got sharp teeth. Should we be afraid of the shark? And the Lord says, no, don't be afraid of the shark. And then here comes loneliness. Should we be afraid? I'm afraid of being lonely. Look, you look lonely. It's a fearful thing. We look at God. Should we be afraid of this? He says, no, don't be afraid of that. Be afraid of me. The whole time, everything you could possibly imagine for you to be afraid of is in that line. And it comes up to you and says, hey, you should worship me by your fear. You should let me manipulate you. You should exalt me so that you do what I want you to do. And we, and we look at each of these things and we look over to the Lord and he says, no, no, be afraid of me alone. I mean, Jesus says it. Remember this verse from Jesus? It's really quite stunning. I think it's Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says, fear not the one who can destroy your body. But fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, the reason why we fear God is because judgment belongs to the Lord. Because we'll stand before the Lord accountable on the last day, and he'll be the one to determine where we go, heaven or hell, life or death, joy and peace or terror and destruction. The Lord is the one who will judge us, and that is why we fear the Lord. And only the Lord. So here's what happens. I mean, hopefully you're you're playing playing along with me, and you're imagining this thing, and you've got all the things that you are afraid of now that you think you might be afraid of then, and one after another they come up to to the front of the line and they say, "Fear me, fear me," and the Lord says, "Nope, nope, 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 nope," and finally there's nobody left. There's nothing left to be afraid of except for God. So we turn to God and we say, "Well, you're the only one left, so you get all my fear." You're the one who deserves my fear. I'm in bondage to you because I know that you're the greatest and I'm a sinner, and so you're going to judge me. And finally, at last, that's the only fear that I have left. And we turn to the Lord and we say, I'm, I, I fear you above all things. I fear you above all things. And then the Lord looks at us and he says, <laughs> and he says, don't be afraid. The, the Lord looks at you, dear friend, listen, the Lord looks at you and he says, fear not. I'm nothing to be afraid. Look, I've sent my son. I've sent my, I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you, to spend his life, to, to spill his blood for you, to forgive all of your sins. And he's now preparing a place for you in heaven. Look how much I love you. 
don't be afraid. I mean, this is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the angels to the shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, for unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the message of Jesus on the resurrection day. When he comes, he appears before the disciples, and he says, don't be afraid. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive. They are forgiven. In other words, there's nothing to be afraid of. When the fear of God has at last cast all other fears, all other false gods, all other idols off the throne of fear, when God alone is there, then he comes to us and he says, don't be afraid of anything at all because I am not at all fearful. I love you. This is just the best. So that the fear of God gets rid of all of these other things and then God says that we're free from fear at last. That perfect love casts out fear. That, God has that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That God was angry with us, but his anger has been turned away in the death of Jesus. So that he comes to us not in terror, but as a friend, and as a savior. He, com he comes to us not booming with the fearful voice of the law, but speaking quietly and peacefully with the voice of the gospel. So, so let's let this word fear be the word fear. And let's rejoice in this fear of God that takes away the fear of anything else, that sets us free from all this bondage. And then let's, the, let's let the Lord tell us to not be afraid, but to rejoice in his promises. And this is Cross Defense, and I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We're going to take a break and come back with Pastor Boyle. See what he has to say about Christ in the Old Testament. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bart Day, President and CEO of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Every day, our Lutheran schools reach out to children and families with the love of Jesus. Our schools are a rich and vital component of the church, and in fact, they are the single greatest ministry we share that can shape the future growth and expansion of the Synod. And so whether it's a customized loan to fit your school's particular needs or help living out your ministry's God-given purpose, we want to help your ministry flourish and grow. So visit us at lcef.org to learn more. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. An attorney for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty recently wrote an op-ed where he's listing five potential major victories for religious liberty this year. Beckett attorney Mike Renzi is my guest at World Lutheran News Digest Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller inviting you to join me every Monday afternoon on Cross Defense, 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock here on KFUO Radio, where we take up curious topics, curious Christian topics, to excite our imaginations, equip our minds, and comfort our consciences with the supreme and beautiful clarity of God's Word. It happens on Cross Defense every Monday afternoon, 2 to 3, here on KFUO. Please make plans to join us. And if you can't join us live, check out the podcast at kfuo.org. 
Listening to KFUO on your smartphone is so easy to do. Smartphone assistant, play KFUO. Playing KFUO radio. You can also visit the place where you get your apps and download the KFUO app. You can also go to the KFUO homepage. Wow, the KFUO homepage is customized to fit your phone with an easy-to-find listening button. When you're on the webpage, you can browse for more information. You can listen to KFUO 24 hours a day at KFUO.org. Don't forget about Facebook, facebook.com slash KFUO radio. Now you're just acting like a Thanks for sticking through the break and for joining me here to talk to Pastor Jeff Boyle, who's pastor of, let's see, he's got seven or eight churches, Grace Lutheran and Trinity Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas. Pastor Boyle, how are you? I'm doing well, Brian. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm great. Hey, you're you're working on um on your dissertation on on the Old Testament and that I think that's did you change your mind is that what you want to talk about no that's that's it let's, let's all right so give it. it to us what so what do you what do you got cooking up and what do you think is helpful for us here well sure I mean it, it sounds fairly self-promoting and I really don't mean to do that but this is on my mind like I need to submit this in the next week or so so um, the brief of it is uh, or at least the title is the real presence of Christ in Scripture a sacramental approach to the Old Testament. And, you know, what I'm trying to do roughly is um, I'm trying to look through how folks have interpreted the Old Testament in light of Christ and trying to maybe weave through where, where they've gone well and where they've maybe skewed things a bit, and then try to reset things maybe with a particularly Lutheran logic to the sacraments, to Christ, and then to the Scriptures. It seems to me like just paying attention that most most Christians today, I think this is a, a, across the board. So this would uh, this includes um, Catholic exegetes, uh, liberal mainline Protestant exegetes, uh, conservative evangelical exegetes, a Lutheran exegetes. That, that, that there's a particular view of the Old Testament, and that is um, the the idea that. What that it's it's a preface or or there's a it's like a, it's almost like a Jewish reading of the Old Testament. They the the Old Testament might tell us that God is one, but it doesn't tell us that that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy the Old Testament might talk about the Messiah, but it doesn't talk about the incarnation or the atonement of the Son of God. In other words, the Old Testament, um, if you just had the Old Testament, you would you would go to the synagogue and not to the church and. The, the, this seems a pervasive way of of reading the prophets. Am I wrong about that? No, I, I think you're exactly right. And and real quickly on that, the reason kind of in my own dissertation, the way I'm running about it is I kind of start with a modern approach, but then I jump back into the early early Christian exegesis because you think of someone like Justin or Irenaeus, and when they are making their defense of the faith, they do not yet have the New Testament at their fingertips. I mean, they know the writings of Paul largely because they're disciples of his disciples, right, and, and John and so forth. Irenaeus sat at the feet of Polycarp, who sat at the feet of John. And, and so they know of these evangelists in St. Paul, but they don't have a book called the New Testament that they're running around with. Hmm. They're making their defense from the Scriptures, and they mean by that the Old Testament. Now, do you have? They didn't have their New Testament at the finger. But do you have some Irenaeus at your fingertips? You want to give us an example? I'm I'm kind of interested. And maybe, if you have the, uh, just to give us a 
little history of Irenaeus, when he was and what, what's the work he was doing? Or Justin, even, if you... Sure. No, Irenaeus, Irenaeus would be fine. Um, let me see, I, I think I've got a couple good quotes from him. You know, part of this is that Irenaeus has... Um, he's the one that kind of gave us the idea of the rule of faith, of thinking in terms of... He gave us this beautiful word, recapitulation, which he actually just took from St. Paul. Uh, so, for instance... To back up even before Irenaeus to St. Paul, we have in Ephesians chapter 1, St. Paul saying, In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, that was Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. And the word that we have in the ESV as unite is this Greek word that means recapitulation. It's anakephaliosasai, right? So it's this heading up and, and drawing together, uniting all things. And Irenaeus latched on to this very early on in the early 3rd century, um, even the end of the second century, where he is seeing in Christ the fulfillment of all things. Can I give you a little Irenaeus quote? Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. Ooh. Okay. Good. This is from Against uh, Heresies? This one is, yeah. So the works that I typically am drawing from in Irenaeus are his Against the Heresies, which are five books that, that went together quite a lengthy defense and largely against the Gnostics, but also a very firm and clear account of how to read the scriptures. He also has a little work that is called the Apostolic Preaching. It's a kind of a teaching tool for pastors that is quite wonderful, I think, but it runs through the scriptures as well. But, but here's, here's one little quote from Irenaeus, where in Book 3 of Against the Heresies, he says, there is therefore, as I have pointed out, one God, the Father, and one Christ Jesus, who came by means of the whole dispensational arrangements connected with him, and gathered together, that's that recapitulation word, gathered together all things in himself. But in every respect, too, he is man, the formation of God. And thus he took up man into himself, the invisible becoming visible, the incomprehensible being made comprehensible, the impassable becoming capable of suffering, and the Word being made man, thus summing up, recapitulation again, all things in himself, taking to himself the preeminence as well as constituting himself head of the Church. He might draw all things to himself at the proper time. Man, there's a, so there's a lot there, but I want you to specifically then hone in on how that how Irenaeus is teaching us to read the Old Testament. In other words, how would you apply that Good. quotation to that? So I, I guess the way I've been, and I've been formed, I think, very much by reading Irenaeus and others like him, but um, the way I tend to put it is, where is the reality, and where are the um, shadows or the the types that bear that reality? So. Uh, the reality is in Christ, 
And so, you know, even with my confirmation kids or the, the kids in catechesis, uh, we were going through a reading that had mention of the Sabbath. And so we had to flesh out, well, what's the Sabbath? What are we to keep holy and so forth? And I said, well, when, when was the, the real Sabbath? And, and they go to, I think, uh, in, in a wonderful way, remembering how they'd been taught, uh, creation, where six days God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. And I say, ah, yes, that's good. But that is uh, really, that is a type or a, a reflection of the true Sabbath. They're like, what? I say, no, the true Sabbath, if this is true, that all things are summed up in Christ, the true Sabbath happened as he rested in the tomb on the seventh day. And that creation itself bears the imprint of what the reality is in Christ the crucified. Now, it takes, I think, Brian, it takes kind of a total rethinking of how time works to make sense of this. But I think if we start with the reality being Christ, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, and find that everything in the Old Testament uh, flows from that, and then just as we also see more easily, it seems, everything in the New Testament and even in our lives today flowing from that as well, I think we'd read the Old Testament better. So, so Paul says, uh, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That's, ex that's what that reminds me of. Does that come into it? I think that's, that's right. And I think that this idea that Paul is constantly bringing them back to, like in Romans 5, you get this Christ being the fulfillment of Adam. Mm -hmm. Right? So you have, mm. you have Adam doing his Adam things, and yet that is already there, the first man being a reflection of, and I, uh, when I say reflection or shadow or type, I don't mean that he's not real, but I, uh, but I mean that he follows the reality, which is Christ. And so where I think the best scripture verse to kind of give us that, I mean, there are a number, but Jesus very plainly saying, before Abraham was, I am. Hmm. Now, so uh, let, me t let me run something by you uh, that I think is yeah. very helpful. When when Moses is up on the top of the mountain, uh, mm -hmm. God gives him this instruction, and he says, uh, make a copy of everything that you see. And so, and he gives him instructions for that copy, and Moses comes down, and he builds all the stuff. I mean, he builds the priesthood, he builds the tabernacle, he builds the altar, he builds, builds the bronze laver, all of this sort of stuff. But this is, he, what he's doing is he's building a replica or a, sh a copy or what Hebrews calls a shadow of the heavenly realities. So that the thing that's real is the heavenly mercy seat. The thing that's real yeah. is the conversation between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The thing that's real is the, is the intent of Jesus to be the sacrifice, to end all sacrifices on the altar of the cross. Those things are what Moses sees. And then when he comes down and puts all these things in the Testament, he's giving the people a picture of how it's going in the throne room of heaven, the things that are being said there and the things that are happening there, so that the tabernacle is a shadow or a picture of that heavenly reality. Yes, exactly. I, I think that's exactly right. And yet, that shadow or that picture is not a nothing, right? Uh, that is the very locus or the place where they are to go to find the reality 
of that heavenly conversation, right? You don't go looking in your heart. You don't go, you know, wherever you want, even though God is everywhere. He had located that conversation in heaven to be found on earth in this place Mm -hmm. where he had designated for Moses. Yeah, so, so that, say I'm a high priest of the Old Testament, and I'm there serving, once a year I go into the Holy of Holies, and I see the, for example, I see the angels embroidered on the, on the veil, and I see the two golden angels sitting on the mercy seat, and then I die, I go to heaven, and I see these four living creatures that are flying around the throne, I'm like, ah, I've seen you guys before, your yeah, picture right. was down on earth, right there, th- th- this is the, the thing that's been given to us, and, but then, the, 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 the wonderful thing for us is that when we, for example, are reading in the Gospels and we see the death of Jesus on the cross portrayed before us, we say, I recognize you, and we think of the the Passover lamb slaughtered and the blood put on the door, or we think of the Day of Atonement when the priests spoke the sins of the people and drove the lamb off into the wilderness, or when we see Jesus resting in the tomb that you said this point, we say, I recognize you before when the Lord gave all the Sabbath stuff, so that all of these things, it's not like these things are prophetic pointings to what Jesus is going to do. They're just, they are manifestations of the reality of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the incarnation and the death of Jesus, just reflected in a in a Moses kind of way in in that testament. Yes, and I would I would even uh, I agree, and I would only maybe strengthen it by saying it is the delivery point. So yes, so it is a reflection, but it's but it's not an accidental reflection or an arbitrary reflection. It is a very gracious delivery from God to his people by means of this reflection. Right. So that so that Jesus himself is present there because the the sacri- so the sacrifice isn't just a reflection of the the death of Jesus. It's a preaching of the death of Jesus, right? Exactly. It's a yes. which, uh, which is So uh, so I'm an Old Testament guy. Oh, go, uh-huh. yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say this is why when you read Leviticus it's so much fun. Because as, as long and boring of a book as it might be, as soon as you start recognizing that when it says, by doing thus and so, the priest shall make atonement for my people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's actually a delivery in this uh, sacrifice. It is not, as we so often think of it, I, I mean, we, uh, we have, I think, much to repent of in terms of how we view the Old Testament, but we so often come at a book like Leviticus as if it's a textbook for the Pharisees by which you simply gain your way into heaven doing these right, works right. that come to your righteousness. Whereas God has, in fact, established this office so that the blood from the cross would be given to them. This, this is two things. It's, tell me if this is an oversimplification. This is how I, I like to think of it. Is it, say I'm an Israelite under the Old Covenant, and I'm here I take a lamb and I go up to the altar, I know that that lamb didn't sin. I'm the one that sinned, after all. It's my trespass offering. I'm the one that sinned and broke God's law. Here's this innocent lamb that's spotless. I take that lamb, and I give it to the priest who puts it on the altar, and I know, as I see that lamb slaughtered, its blood spilled, and its cor- its body set on fire, and the smoke of it rising up to heaven, that God accepts the death of another in my place. I know that. And I also know that it's not enough to to have a lamb for a man 
It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It must be something more to atone for my sin. So that this lamb is not sufficient to atone for my sins, but in fact it's preaching the sufficiency of the Son of God who will eventually uh, must be the sacrifice for my sins. I know all that is all preached to me from from the Old Testament sacrifice. And maybe I want to say this, Pastor Boyle, this is where I maybe go a step too far for most people, is that in the Old Testament, the fathers and the and the mothers and the and the people who were bringing the sacrifice, they knew that, they they understood that preaching. They knew that God would provide His Son as a sacrifice for for sins. I got we got like one minute to go to the break. What do you think about that idea? Well, if you're going too far, then the Book of Hebrews has left the page. Because <laughs> Good. Throughout, it is by faith Abraham, by faith Noah. You know, I, I mean the. The list runs on with exactly that point. By faith means that they trusted that what they were doing in obedience to God's own word was, in fact, a delivery for them, their own salvation. They, they clung to that. And, and so should you, and so should the faithful Israelite who, you know, simply goes about his duty, recognizes his sin, and comes to the altar in order to sacrifice according to God's word. Oh God! This this is a. Can you see, dear friends who are listening here, the, how, the the richness of the Old Testament? It was it was preaching the blood of Christ. The old the Bible is a book filled with blood, front front of beginning, and it's the atoning blood of Jesus that is is dripping off of every page. We're going to go to the break now. You ready for this, Stephanie? We're going to go to the break. We're going to come back after this, and we'll talk some more with Pastor Boyle. I want to bring up this Luther quote, uh, where he says. He makes the distinction between the winning of forgiveness and the delivery of forgiveness, and I just want to make sure you have that in your thesis. So we'll be back with Pastor Jeff Boyle. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You're listening to Cross Defense. Stay tuned. This week on Issues Etc., we'll have Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer answer the question, Does God Change His Mind in the Old Testament? We'll continue our Lutheran Catechesis series, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about the rich young ruler, covetousness, and the close of the commandments. And we'll have Pastor David Peterson lead us in a teaching on the presentation of our Lord. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Orazio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I think one of the most amazing, I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, by the way, one of the most amazing things is to worship with Christians in other places in the world. I've, I've taken people to, to Israel, to Germany, to Greece, to Turkey. We've done that, and it's just, it's so fantastic and eye-opening. We're going to do it again this summer. We're going to go and visit our missionaries in Spain. We're going to tour around Spain for 11 days, and while we're there, we're going to spend a weekend in Seville to see the work of the Lutheran Church being born in Spain. If you're interested or you know someone that's interested, you can find all the information on the website wolfmuller.co forward slash Spain 2019. It's W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R dot C-O slash Spain 2019. Hope you can join us. 
Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Everyone, is, hey, Pastor Boyle, are you guys, you and Nikki, coming to Spain with us this summer? We're going June fourth to fourteenth. Do you guys sign up for that yet? Oh, we would love to. We've oh. we actually we've been there a couple times. Oh, and, that's right. And have you, loved it. You speak uh, of the so Espanol. I've been doing my Duolingo, basic. Oh, I'm so <laughs> bad. You know, I took three years of Spanish. Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing. It's terrible. <laughs> you know what you need is just start having Spanish services. I mean, I I preach in Spanish every Sunday, and uh, you know it's probably the most stressful thing I do every week. But even more stressful th- than that is the short conversations that I have to have off the cuff. And and you know the more you preach, the more you start to be less bound by the manuscript, so to speak, and you want to just look up and start talking. And I start doing that, and I get to a spot where I'm like. I don't know this word that I want. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's a little bit of a panic, and I got to go back down and find where I am. And uh, but it, it is a lot of fun, and it you know it certainly helps your Spanish. I got out my Santa Biblia this uh, this week to read over the text after I had written my sermon on it, and I thought uh, it's like the new international version of the of the Spanish Bible, and it's so I couldn't actually if it was a more literal translation, I could have read it. <laughs> Yeah, because you know, oh, actually, well. we found that out. It, it does get pretty bad at times, and so, in fact, my members—we've got a little Hispanic ministry going on—and they said, "Pastor, can we just use the Reina Valera from 1960?" And that's it's it. kind of like King James. Yeah, that's what I mean. And need. it's it's wonderful. So King James Spanish we, Bible. We use that. We use the 1960 version. If you're listening and you want to take uh, Pastor Boyle and Nikki's spot into Spain, instead of them coming, you can come. The info is at wolfmuller.co slash Spain2019. We just have like a week to get the – we have 28 folks coming. Uh, We have like 15, 16 seats left, but those are going to close up here pretty quick in a week. So if you're listening, you want to join us, that's the information. Now, Pastor Boyle, so we're talking about Christ in the Old Testament. If you're just tuning in and how we need to have a full and robust understanding of Christ – the the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, all in the Old Testament. The reality is Christ, which is reflected and preached and delivered to the Old Testament people. So Luther writes, I got. I want to figure out how, this is, I think, one of the most important Luther writings ever against the heavenly prophets. I'm trying to figure out how to be able to post it online and stuff like this, because the, all the translations we have are in, 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 under copyright. But Luther writes in there that we make a distinction between the winning of the forgiveness of sins and the delivery of the forgiveness of sins. Christ wins the forgiveness of sins by his death on the cross. That is the that is his winning of atonement. He delivers it once he's and then Luther says once he's won it, it's up to him however he wants to deliver it. He can deliver it whenever wherever he wants to do it. And in the Old Testament, he delivered it through the preaching of the prophets, through the sacrifices, even through circumcision. In the New Testament, he delivers it through the preaching through the absolution, through baptism, through the supper, how he can distribute and deliver the forgiveness however he wants to once he's won it on the cross. So, have you quoted that in your thesis? Actually, I just, you know, when you said that before the break, I started flipping through, and I don't think I do, actually. And, ah. and I probably should use it. I've got these little quotes ahead of time. I have a lot of Luther, actually, but from his great confession concerning Christ's Supper, I, I have to define this sort of sacramental approach, but... But I think it's, a, it's, it's exactly right in kind of what's governing my thought towards this, so it would make perfect sense to use it. Uh, but, you know, on that note, does any of that even make sense from a, you know, maybe on our side of the, of the cross and resurrection, if we don't actually hold a 
sacramental view of things? Well, th- no, know? that's a that's a great question, and and maybe that takes us to this word sacramental, and you can maybe give us a little definition or contrast, like contrast sacramental with what you think is normal. Well, uh, what I think, um, well, I don't know what's meant by normal, but. But, but I would say there's at least two fundamental ways of thinking through these things of the church, these rites, and so forth. And maybe it's easier, more familiar terrain for us to start there in terms of things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, what's the role of the pastor, these, and preaching in general. Do these, in fact, do anything? And, and uh, I think you come away with two maybe ontologically different answers. One says yes, the other says no. And in baptism, for instance, if you say it does not in itself do anything, you probably have a more symbolic or uh, representational view of, of the Lord's Supper. Like, it's not the body and blood, but it's a picture of or a representation of. If it doesn't do anything, you know what Dorothy Sayers said, uh, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. And, uh, and the reason she said that is because our Lord instituted this, and, and he didn't do it flippantly, and he didn't do it simply to give us a hoop to jump through to show our obedience. He did it because he loves us, and he desired to, like Luther said, actually give us himself. Now, if that is the sort of God that we have, the one who loves us and desires to give himself to us, the question then becomes, well, how has he ordered it such that he would give himself to us? Where has he promised to be for us? Where has he promised to deliver himself to us? And in that way, this Luther quote is just remarkable, that he wins forgiveness on the cross, but don't go there. Don't go there to get the forgiveness. He delivers that cross. The blood from the cross uh, is what fills the chalice that is put on your lips. The blood from the cross is what has dyed the baptismal waters red for you. I mean, this is, the reality is that those are the places where the reality is given. Mm. I think this is... No, I, I'm just going to pile on a little bit and let you keep going. But there's, there's a way that um, I think you're right that the word, the word of God, the scriptures or the preached word or whatever, the word of God is understood chiefly as informative. It's it, it gives us information. It's right. it, it, it's descriptive, but it's not authoritative. It's not it la- the the attribute that the Lutherans use to describe this is the efficacy, the efficacy mm-hmm. of God's word. So, so that God's word is powerful to do what it says, and it's the difference between, it's it's I, I suppose it's the difference between, like a judge and a court reporter. So so there's a so say there's a courtroom there's a case and and you're there and you're being tried and you're you're found to be innocent. The judge says you are innocent, and his word makes you innocent. The court yeah. reporter says. Pastor Boyle was declared innocent. That doesn't make you innocent. That's a description of what happened. And most people read the Bible like a court report rather than the declaration of the judge. Right. And and with that, if if it is just a report, that means it's a report of which I need to 
enact it or yes uh, yeah yeah i need to be the one that operates in such a way as to make it effective for me and and the reality is that's well that's not grace first of all and that's not the way that our lord has ordered these things to be to, to be done he hasn't just laid it out there and kind of like i remember hearing in college was well well god has cast his vote satan has cast his vote oh. where are you gonna go oh, oh. No, that's yeah. the worst. I that that is, that is one of the. But but why? So I that makes me just cringe uh, a little bit thinking about it. But but unfold the the ugliness of it because no doubt people who are listening have heard that preached before and thought, well, I thought that's what the gospel was. We got to cast the deciding vote. And then the the question is, well, what evidence is necessary for me to make that vote? And realistically, if I look at my life. Where have I cast my vote? And, yeah. and, and it terrifying. sets God. You see, I mean, it makes us God because we are the ones standing in judgment. Like God has said, hey, you should yeah. choose me. And the devil saying, you should choose me. And now we stand as God making the great judgment over who's who's better for how there's a there's a pernicious pride in that in that seeming humility of the of the casting your vote business. Well, not only that, but it, it, it portrays a God no different than the sort of atheistic clockwork that you get in the in the enlightenment like god god's wound up his sort of uh divine grace and uh, and he lets it go and, and then he's distant and stands back and has no operative power within our lives or the world or he's, he's just watching maybe maybe in the corner hoping or, or even praying that we'd make the right choice but it, that's not a god that well doesn't sound like a god at all. <laughs> it's, it's, it makes us. Oh, now, all right, before we end, I, I do. There's something I want you to dispel a little bit, and this yeah. I think should be fun. A lot of people think, "Hey, the Old Testament is where God is mean, and the New Testament is where God is nice." Could you dispel mm. that myth uh, for us? How, how would you uh, take that apart? Well, it's it's just wrong. <laughs> uh, you see, in the Old Testament. Beautiful, beautiful passages of God's grace being delivered. I mean, how do you read the the gracious works of uh, words of Isaiah? How do you how do you come to the fact that the Lord desires to save His people, such that He would establish a ta- tabernacle and temple and the altar and circumcision, so that He could tie His promise to it, or, or the rainbow and so forth? And God's own creation is is a very gracious creation. And then in the New Testament, you've got Jesus overturning tables, talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth. And um, you, the facts just don't bear it out. Not only that, but theologically, then, you're presented with two different gods. And, and this was a, a very strong early church heresy that Irenaeus, for one, had to deal with. This idea of, of a Marcion who had this notion that, the God of the Old Testament was, in fact, a, a demigod or, or a lesser god, and the God of the New Testament is the real thing. And so what do you do when that's your situation? Well, you cut out the Old Testament, hmm. and you cut out the majority of the New. Hmm. And then you're left with a canon of Scripture based off of your own interpretation of who God is, rather than having this uh, authoritative canon of Scripture that is, Forming and delivering to us who God is for us. Uh, a lot of people might not have heard of uh, Marcion, you know, Marcion asking for a friend. This is a form of Gnosticism that says, 
Old Testament God, mean God. So he, he said what Marcion cut out all the prophets, and in the New Testament he says you only have Paul and the Gospel of Luke, and all the other books are thrown out too. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Man, so that's this, and, and you take this principle. I mean, how about Marcion as the kind of proto-higher critic? You take your principle of the parts of God, the theology that you like, and then you go about cutting up the scriptures to, to take out the parts that you don't like. Well, if I could make it just a little bit more, oh, I don't know, tragic or scary, is the fact that the greatest exponent of Marcion, and overtly and um, openly so, was a guy named Adolf von Harnock in Berlin, uh, really at, at the turn of the century, who was a student of Schleiermacher and so forth. But oh, and he was one of the great professors for a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But but von Harnack was the one who. Uh, not only said Marcion was right, and that the Christians ought to have rejected this New Testament or this Old Testament long ago, but he then also was very adamant to defend Hitler and the execution of the Jews. Oh boy! The two go together, and it's it's quite tragic when you read the history of biblical scholars in the late 19th, early 20th century. Pastor Boyle, you're not going to believe this. We have like two minutes left, which is crazy. So I want, I mean, we all just like we're getting started. But uh, so I want you to give, uh, so a few final thoughts on, here I am, I'm reading the Old Testament. I, 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 maybe I had thought that. Old Testament, mean God, New Testament, nice God. Old Testament, Jewish book, New Testament, Christian book. And, and now you're talking, so where, where would you start? Or give me just maybe a couple of pieces of advice. Oof, you better go quick. One piece of advice for engaging helpfully with the Old Testament. Okay, real quickly, I would simply say this. The center of everything is the cross of Christ. And that when that cross hits the timeline, let's say, of this world, it sends it reverberating forwards and backwards. So that every Old Testament institution, story, promise, figure, the very words themselves, the Psalms, and all of it, all of it is affected by not simply foretelling or preparing for, but affected by the cross of Christ. And when you read the Old Testament that way, not only does it have a richness, but I actually think you're reading it the way that the Lord gave it to us, that the prophets were given to see this cross, and that's what they were speaking, preaching, uh, that's what the sacrifices were delivering. The grace of God is the cross of Christ dropped like a stone into a pond. It echoes backwards in the Old Testament, forward in the New Testament, but all of it flows from Christ, who is our Savior. Pastor Boyle, thank you so much. And I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, on Cross Defense. Hey, here, let's end with this text. Here's the preaching of Isaiah, chapter 43, who says, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through, the Lord is the one saying, I'm your Savior. Don't be afraid. I'm your Savior from beginning to end. God be praised. Hey, talk to you next week on Cross Defense.
Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense. Oh, I'm so happy that you download the podcast. If you enjoyed something about this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can find all the contact information on the website, wolfmuller.co. And if there was something helpful for you that you think would be helpful for a friend, don't forget to share the show. Send it to him, point it out to him. Hope this sparks the theological conversation and joy that comes from engaging in the Lord's Word. We'll look forward to talking to you next week.